Good morning. Happy Monday. I have neuro coffee in hand and mm, it is perfect. So very exciting morning for me. I got to talk to somebody I hadn't talked to in a long time. Um, he's at the very high level of professional sports. So we got to talk a little bit about that. Um, and we were talking about foot types a little bit this morning. seems like uh, it's been foot week, kind of like shark week, where we started talking about the feet last week and it's carried over to this week. Anyway, we're talking about different foot types and, and what we should see on a performance level. And I thought it would be kind of neat to connect this to a squat and a deadlift and, and how your foot type might actually influence your performance in the gym. So I can give you some distinguishing characteristics there and then maybe some modifications that, that actually may help your lifts a little bit. So, so let's dig right into this. And so let's start with, with our, our three foot types. So I break the foot down, I make it very, very simple. I have what I would call an early propulsive foot. So we have the, the tibia that's sort of behind the foot. This would be somebody that has a, a very supinated foot or a very high arch and then a very stiff big toe. So the, the first ray is, is plantar flex, as they would say, it's pushing into the ground. The middle range, so the middle propulsive foot is where we start to get relative motion. So when I say relative motion, it's this motion here where the calcaneus and the talus move in opposition. So there's a lot of relative motion there. And, and so that would be your middle propulsive strategy. This is where we're gonna see a lot of dorsiflexion occur. And then we're gonna see this late propulsive foot. So we're gonna take this relative motion that we had in the middle range, we're gonna lock it back together. These bones are gonna move as one, and we're gonna see the heel lift off the ground and, and then the toes extend as such. And so while you may be biased towards one of these three foot types, keep in mind that we've got this broad spectrum, this big gradient that, that makes you sort of like a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But we're gonna kind of break this down into the, into the, the, the three foot types and how it relates to your squat and deadlift. If we look at the middle one, where we have all of this relative motion, these are the people that tend to have what we would consider really, really pretty body weight squats. So these people have great body weight squatting capabilities, but they might not be terribly strong um, because the, the requirements to get into this, this deeper squat pattern um, in this relative motion that occurs requires a lot of eccentric orientation to capture these deeper, deeper squat patterns. And so if you don't develop this concentric capability to overcome um, the, the, the loads that, that you may want to actually lift, if you're, if you're one of those people that are chasing numbers, you might find that you're just not meant to be that strong. But you do have a pretty squat, and so people will be jealous of you for that reason alone. But let's talk about the two other ends. Okay, so we've got an early propulsive foot with the high arch, and then we've got this late propulsive foot, which actually has a much lower arch, but different force producing capabilities. So those people that are biased towards this early propulsive strategy with the higher arch and the, and the plantar flex first ray will tend to have a squat and a deadlift that are very comparable in, in their force producing capabilities. So let's just say you got a 300 pound squat, you probably got a deadlift that's probably in the same general vicinity. Okay, if you're biased towards the other end of the extreme, so, so you're in the late propulsive capabilities, you're gonna have an amazing deadlift and a pretty parochial squat, relatively speaking. So maybe you can deadlift 500 pounds, but your squat's only like three. So there's a big gap there. And so now what we wanna think about is, okay, how do I, 
How do I sort of even this out to some degree? What are the ways that I can take this big differential between my squat and, and my deadlift and, and sort of bring my squat up? Because you're always gonna be a good deadlifter when you're in this late propulsive strategy. And so we can use our box squatting um, as, as a point of reference or an exercise of reference as to how we wanna modify training to sort of even this thing out. So when we talk about the people that have this huge differential between squatting and deadlifting, they are concentric overcomers all day, every day. They're very, very high force producers. Their center of gravities are always forward. And, and so what we need to teach them to do is to capture some measure, some measure of a yielding strategy. And so the way that we're gonna do this is we're gonna use the box squat. And so this is gonna be very much like a traditional powerlifting style box squat. So if, you're, if you've ever read anything from Louis Simmons or West Side and where they talk about deloading their body weight onto the box, that's gonna be your number one strategy to help bring up your, your squatting capabilities to your deadlift. Because what deloading on the box does is allows you to create this yielding strategy. So you're actually distributing the load through your skeleton and through your connective tissues. And that allows you to actually capture the appropriate depth and then spring back up off the box. Because typically what you're running into when you have this huge differential between your squat and your deadlift is that you just can't capture this yielding strategy, which makes it so difficult. What you may find is that over time, um, you know, as the load increases, that your squat gets a little prettier, but you're still not you're still not being able to, to to create that that return on investment as you descend. It's a it's still you're a grinder. You're trying to push through this thing because you just don't have the yielding strategy. So deloading onto the box is going to be be your number one strategy. If we go to the other extreme where we have this person with the, with the high arch, plantar flex first ray, tibia tends to be behind, we can still use the box squat, but in this circumstance, this is gonna be one of those situations where you do not wanna spend too much time on the box. So you're gonna to try to get off the box fairly quickly. It'll eventually turn into a touch and go, um, and that's gonna to start to bring your squat numbers up as well. But you're always gonna be this guy that has a squat and a deadlift that are very, very comparable. Sorry, um, you picked the wrong parents if you're trying to trying to, to create the big, uh, big deadlift. You're just not gonna be the best deadlifter in the room. However, one of the little compensation strategies you can use is to go sumo. That's gonna get you a little bit bigger numbers on your deadlift, by the way. So, I hope this gives you a little bit of strategy to play with. This was kind of a fun one to talk about coming off this call this morning. Um, if you have any questions about foot type or, or how to modify your training, um, send me a question at askbillhartman at gmail.com or post them up on Instagram here or on YouTube if this is where you're watching it. So have a great Monday. I will see you guys tomorrow. Good morning. Happy Tuesday, I have NeuroCoffee in hand, and it is perfect. Okay, so I was on a call this morning with a mentee in Italy, therefore we had to go Italian Batman um, in celebration of that call, but um, the, the Q&A is going to come from that call as well, because we were talking about this dichotomy of, of performance versus health 
um, in working with certain populations and, and, and this mentee has to deal with some very, very high level performance people that do tend to have this, this wide infrastructural angle presentation. And, and so there is a bat, there's a constant battle between maintaining this really, really high level performance and then maintaining some measure of health. So these people can keep showing up for what they do for a living. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about that so we can talk about some training strategies because there, I'm sure there's many of you out there that are dealing with kind of the same issue is you want to do really, really well in the gym. You want to perform well in your sport. And so there's always the consequence that's associated with trying to raise performance. And so let's talk about how we're going to, how we're going to structure things and how we're going to do that. For those of you living under a rock, the ISA is this little angle right here at the bottom of the rib cage that we use <clears throat> as a proxy measure for the, the design and structure of, of your skeleton and then certain behaviors that are associated with that and then certain consequences that are associated with, with training or rehabilitation. And so with the ISA strategy, so this is our exhaled axial skeleton with a compensatory inhalation strategy that's superimposed on top of it, thus this physical presentation. But because we, we are dealing with a bias towards exhalation, as we try to drive performance, we are actually reinforcing what these, these people are genetically pre-designed to be good at. And so we, we always have to be careful because we can, we can take things too far too quickly and then we sacrifice something else. And so, so what we want to make sure is that when we're talking about performance, we have a well-defined intention when we're, when we're talking about it, like, so I want this person to be able to do such and such from a performance standpoint. And then what activities are going to be supportive of that? And so, so again, in most cases, in most cases of force production, we're going to be talking about exhalation based activities. So there's always a forceful exhalation strategy that is superimposed on top of that activity. The stronger the exhalation strategy, the greater my force production. And again, because of the bias, um, as we as we move towards higher and higher levels of performance, if we don't monitor things that we would associate with health or skill level, then obviously we're going to have detrimental secondary consequences for that. So we always want to determine what our key performance indicators are going to be. So what are the things that we cannot sacrifice in regards to performance? And so if, if we were talking about, say, a golfer and we want to increase his long drive capabilities. Well, obviously that's a force production issue, but we also don't want to sacrifice his ability to turn, to um, adjust his swing based on any number of influence that are associated with things from uneven ground to obstacles and such. If we're talking about a baseball pitcher, obviously we want to increase their, their velocity, which again is a force producing um, uh, need, but I don't want to sacrifice um, ranges of motion that, that may be um, essential for him to be able to perform without a compensatory strategy that would eventually load a tissue and result in, in an injury as well. We also have to consider things that, that we think about like normal behaviors. Okay, how's your sleep? How's your ability to focus? Are you making progress in the gym or, or are, you, are you plateaued or, or stagnated? So again, it's not just skill, it's not just ranges of motion, it's, it's all of these behaviors that, that underlie this. So when we talk about the reinforcement of, of the exhalation strategy of force production of high levels of performance, 
we're going to move towards things that that produce the compressive strategy so in the gym the easy things to identify that that will do this are the things where both of your both sides of your body are doing the same thing at the same time so these are going to be your your barbell based exercises so deadlifts squats presses of all kinds whether they be they be uh, bench press or 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 overhead head pressing um, or um, if I'm pulling myself up or pulling something down with both hands under those circumstances I am I am activating the superficial musculature that increases this compressive strategy. So right away, I'm I'm superimposing greater force production on top of this axial skeleton. If I'm trying to offset the negative secondary consequences under those circumstances, now I got to start thinking about my accessory lifts and my supplementary activities that are going to support my ability to reshape my body in the opposing direction. So the cool thing about my little skeleton guy here is that he is very, very wide, but he is also very, very narrow anterior to posterior, as you can see. That type of a structure is going to be associated with a limited ability to turn, so a loss of, of rotational ranges of motion in, in the hips and shoulders. So this could be your monitor. For those of you that are, that are training yourselves in the gym and don't have somebody that, that can help you out, you can actually monitor your, your shoulder and hip range of motion as your, as your KPIs. The way you would overcome these compressive strategies then is to think about what activities will shape my body in the opposing direction. So if I take uh, a, a front to back kind of an orientation, so I'm getting squished this way by high levels of performance, high level of force output, high levels of muscle hypertrophy, I have to think about the things that would actually expand me anterior to posterior. So right away we go to unilateral strategies because we get a compressive strategy on one side, we will get the expansive strategy on the other side. And so we get this kind of a reciprocal expansion compression, which will actually help us maintain our ability to turn and also our ability to expand certain areas of, of the thorax and the pelvis that will help us maintain ranges of motion. So we, we need to make sure we include split stance activities, single leg activities that will also allow us to support ourselves through one side and again, creating this reciprocal compression um, and, and expansion. When we think about um, just sort of trunk activities that, that many people will do, um, if we are biased towards this wide ISA increased compressive strategy, the difference between a, a say a cable chopping activity on a diagonal versus a cable lifting activity on a diagonal um, we would want to use a strategy that actually reduces reduces the influence of gravity which would be our chopping element which will actually promote a greater ability to expand ourselves anterior to posterior and overcome this compressive strategy um, the simple way to, to look at, at what i'm talking about if you would compare, say, a prone plank where you're on both forearms to a side plank where you're on one side, in the, in the prone situation, you're actually reinforcing the compressive strategy. So I rarely put these wide people in, in what, what would typically be, be um, utilized commonly in, in that prone plank um, because it does reinforce exactly what we've already done from our performance level. So these would be more people that you put in their side plankers, which actually increases your ability to expand um, front, front to back. And so now we can start to throw in some creativity where we're doing some single arm supported activities through the ground. So things like your, your sit throughs, kettlebell get ups and things like that are actually excellent choices to help maintain the ability to turn and expand. So I hope this gives you a couple of ideas as to what we're talking about when we're talking about strategies that actually reinforce 
um, the, the archetype and it can actually enhance performance. But we, again, we don't want to sacrifice those things that we, we use um, from a skill level perspective or a health level perspective. Um, if you have any questions about anything we talked about today, please post them here on Instagram. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, post it down below or go to askbillhartman at gmail.com and send me a Q&A question. I will talk to you guys tomorrow. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, Wednesday, very exciting. Wednesday is exciting because tomorrow is chips and salsa day. It's also uh, 6 a.m. Uh, coffee and coaches conference call. Please join us for that. Um, go to my Facebook page, my professional Facebook page. The link will be up there um, in the wee hours of, of tomorrow morning. All you got to do is post your coffee prep on the Instagram. I will share that. And then you get to join us for a, a great conversation. We had a great call last week, um, which was really, really fun. So we dug into some stuff um, rather deeply, which was kind of neat. And it sort of initiated this whole foot thing. Um, so, yeah, it's been like a foot week. Um, and, and one of the questions today pertains to that. I'm gonna do a twofer, so here we go. Um, first question comes from Alex, and Alex wrote me this um, synopsis of, of his presentation as a, as a uh, foundation for his question, but basically what, what he wants to know is, um, in regards to the foot types, in my experience, the measures that you see further up the chain, do certain ISAs mirror certain foot types? Can the foot type detail um, explain the compensations expected outside of the, the tibia, the talus, and the calcaneus. So, so is the foot representation going to give us any information as to what we should expect to see above the foot? And I think this is a great question, Alex. But let me clarify one thing for, for Alex. Alex, you don't have a late propulsive foot. You get an early propulsive foot. Early propulsive foot to be behind and, and externally rotated. I got a really high arch. And I got a plantar flex first frame. So you're early, bud. Anyway, um, that was for him. So regardless of the foot type, however, um, what we want to recognize is, is that the, the foot is our, our main ground contact. It's supporting all the load from above. And it stands to reason that if I have an orientation or a presentation above the foot that alters the position of the center of gravity, then I have to have a foot that is going to adjust to that. And so Alex, your, your question is actually right on point, unfortunately. Unfortunately, this is a really long conversation. So we, if we, we were at the intensive and you asked me this question at the intensive, we are going to have about an hour long talk about this. So let me just give you a little quickie kind of a, a representation here. So we think about all the possibilities as far as the orientations and, and positions that the pelvis could be in. And we have to recognize the fact that, that I have to control my center of gravity. I don't want to fall. And so the way that I would do that is I would make adjustments in the foot. And so let's just say that I have some sort of concentric strategy that I'm utilizing in the pelvis that's pushing me in a direction. I would also have to have some form of concentric strategy in the foot that's going to help me maintain my balance. And so, yes, these things do become very predictable. Let me give you a case in point. So I'm talking to... Um, um, Mr. Camperini last night 
and and uh, I sent him a, a little little foot thing, and I, I I always test him. I don't know why. Maybe it's because he's a former Padawan, but I always want to challenge him and make sure he's on point. And so I said, "Hey, what do you predict above the pelvis?" And he was really accurate because he has really dug into the model um, rather deeply. And so I think that that um, you make a really really good point here, Alex. Is that we should recognize the fact that this foot is connected to everything else. There are relationships that are associated with the the orientations above the foot and yes it is very very predictable. It's probably something that we probably need to expand upon at some point in time but I'm gonna have to do it in some other form and, and unfortunately I think that it's gonna be more of an intensive oriented kind of a thing where we have plenty of time to, to break these things down. So this short form video kind of thing just doesn't do it justice because it is rather detailed. But once you get it, it's incredibly powerful. Because just like we use iterations above and below in the axial skeleton to confirm our suspicions, we can use the foot at, uh, in the same way where we would expect to see a presentation in the foot that we would see up in the pelvis as well. So thanks, Alex, I appreciate that. Um, second question. Um, so, uh, fellow Austin also threw me a, a really good question um, because of, of what he's observing in, in the purple room. Um, he's got some sequencing questions, and so so Austin's question um, is: When you have a patient with a narrow infrasternal angle that is limited both ER and IR, how do you prioritize interventions to emphasize expansion where it is needed? So. So let's break this down first and foremost. So we've got some information and let's just kind of see where we're starting from and then that's gonna tell us how we're going to, to uh, intervene. So if we've got a narrow, narrow infrasternal angle, <clears throat> and we're gonna assume that we have limited uh, breathing excursion because we've lost ERs and IRs. So that tells us what we're, what we're looking at. So we've got a, an ER ilium, we've got a counter-nutated sacrum. We're just gonna say that this person is symmetrical in that regard. So we can see this, this counter-nutation and ER. So I got my narrow IPA. I've got, like I said, the counter-nutation here, which is gonna bias my acetabulum back towards external rotation. If I have my full internal external rotation available to me, my total physiological range of 100 degrees will be intact. So let's just say at the extreme of this, let's just say that I have 80 degrees of external rotation, 20 degrees of internal rotation. I know that I don't have any superficial strategies that are that are negatively influencing the, the position of the pelvis. However, um, Austin says, what if you lost ERs and IRs? Okay. So now we got to think about sequencing, about how a, a narrow would lose their, their ranges of motion based on these superficial strategies. So because of the orientation of the sacrum relative to the ilium, I'm gonna see an anterior compressive strategy coming on first. That's gonna steal my IR, okay? Then I'm gonna see an orientation most likely. That's gonna steal my ER. So now we know what comes first. So we got anterior compression first, and then we got the posterior orientation that is, that is driving the, the loss of ER. One other thing that I know is I also have some posterior lower compression that's associated early on with the narrow ISA presentation. So I also have that to be concerned with. 
but because I have an orientation problem, that's gonna prevent me from recapturing relative motions. So whenever I have the orientation situation in play, that's gonna be strategy number one. I gotta go after that. So my first intervention is going to be to try to reorient reorient that uh, that entire pelvis. So as a unit, so we're not talking relative motion here, we're just talking about an absolute position of going from an anterior orientation to posterior orientation. Um, there's any number of ways to do that. It's gonna be a hip extension based type of an activity. Um, you get your choice in, in that regard. Now, because my next strategy would be the anterior compression, I wanna go address that as well. So that's gonna be the next thing I'm gonna do. One of the great ways to do this for narrows um, and get a big bang out of this because if I put you in a 90 degree angle, I'm gonna get the expansion anteriorly. And so I gotta think, okay, if I have this, this strategy in the pelvis, I'm gonna have that strategy in, in the upper thorax as well. So quadruped works great under these circumstances for a lot of reasons. Um, not only is it gonna get me the anterior expansion that I need here, but it's also gonna help me reduce some of the compressive strategy in the posterior lower pelvis, posterior lower rib cage. So again, very, very useful to go, to go quadruped under those circumstances. Last thing I'm gonna do with my narrow ISA person is I'm gonna try to restore the normal relative motion of that sacrum. So I'm gonna to try to bring the sacral base back into counter-nutation. That's gonna be more of your dorsal rostral stuff in the upper thorax, and so it's gonna mirror that. So, so again, from a sequencing standpoint, if we were to, to, to back up just a little bit, we're gonna go orientation, anterior expansion, posterior expansion for your narrow ISA client that has lost ER and IR because that's gonna strip away those strategies in the sequence in which they occur. So it's really, really simple. So I hope that's useful for you guys. Um, happy Wednesday, have a great day. Um, don't forget to call tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. Join us for coffee and coaches. Um, Chips and salsa day is tomorrow too. Have a great Wednesday and I'll see you tomorrow. Rock and roll. It is a Thursday. Happy Thursday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect, even though Dr. Mike Russell is not on the call this morning. But you gotta think about let me grab let me grab the television. You know, people always look at this stuff as rigid. Without the the the, the concept that I can do this on top of a femur. And each one of these twists and turns and orientations will affect whatever I measure on the table. And then you have to appreciate the fact that as I move them, their weight is shifting on the table. So not only do I have movement that I'm creating in my perceived perfect measurement style, right? Um, I have to appreciate the fact that they're moving underneath my measurements based on where their weight shift is. And again, that, that's something that they don't teach us in school because as we all know, when you learn how to measure in school, they're perfectly in the middle ground somewhere, right? And, and we are mo moving exactly what we think we're moving. Um, so we have to appreciate the fact that, that there's a lot of stuff going on as we move. Um, now, for, for, the, for what you've just expressed, so I have somebody that, that was very similar to that. Um, 
I would say that, that her one measurement, she, so she had like external rotation of 80 degrees and then everything was like zero or minus. I see that a lot too. Yeah, but it was only, it was only on one side. Okay. Right? And, but, but what you start to recognize is that, oh, okay, so what I have is this really big, and it's an orientation, so it's the whole, take the whole pelvis and tip it on an oblique axis. And that's how you get crazy measures like that. Hmm. Okay. okay. When you're, whenever you're in doubt as to what you're looking at, um, take all your measures into consideration, identify what you think you're looking at, and then intervene, and then do something, right? And then remeasure. Because a lot of times we don't figure these things out until after we do something. Where, where we can say, okay, this was the initial representation that I had. Here's what I did with the intention of something, right? And then what happened? And then you look back and you go, oh, now I get it. She was tipped up like this, and this was turned this way, and this was turned this way, right? Or you say, um, oh, as I was measuring, what was happening was that the pelvis was actually turning towards me, and then that's what skews my measurements, right? Because again, I, 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 and, and this is, this is a really difficult thing to grasp because it's just another layer of, of complexity when we're looking at things and measuring things um, that we have to consider and it makes it very gray, right? Instead of like, oh, I know exactly where this person is. I have to say, uh, maybe, right? Another thing that you can do is you can do something manually to induce some form of sensation, right? And then see what happens under those circumstances. So let's just say that you've got the crazy external rotation, no internal rotation. What would be a manual technique that you would use to recapture internal rotation? Do that and see what happens, right? Because the the, the lady that I was working with, that's exactly what I did. It's like I had this crazy, like a right hip external rotation of 80 degrees and then like minus 10 for, for her internal rotation, right? So I just did, I just mobilized her hip to, to recapture the internal rotation. And then lo and behold, wonderful things happened. That's acceptable because again, these things are hard, right? Um, we don't always know exactly what our representation is going to be. And there's nothing wrong with experimenting in this situation because it is in, in the complex domain, we, we only figure things out in hindsight. Dwight, you're back. Yes, didn't have video, sorry. That's all right. So I Bill, see, I want you to see, you know, all this. That's why I joined right back. This is, this is the best I look all day, and then it just gets worse. Trust me. <laughs> I was going to use that line. <laughs> so in that situation, I'm picturing that the oblique, obliquity could be right or left, and whichever orientation, well, actually, whichever representation of that one pelvis where, or ilium where she did not have... Um, flexion and internal rotation was externally rotated and tilted. Yes, sir. 
Uh, that, that would be my, right, that would be my best guess. It's like, so, so you got to think about, um, um, when, so when you're lacking flexion and, and you think about the musculature that would have to be concentrically oriented to limit that, like, like to, to bring the hip towards flexion. Sure. It's got to be down low on the, on the posterior aspect of the pelvis, right? Correct. And then you say, okay, well, if this is concentrically oriented, what, what is that going to do as far as the position is relative to the femur? It's going to shove it forward, right? Yes. And, and but I'm, I'm trying to continually learn and, and visualize the obliquities that you just described and also mm -hmm. whether or not an ilium or you have an orientation where both are internally rotated externally rotated and or even tilted or twisted yep because you can have all those oh without a doubt that's where it gets really hard but see and and you know this this takes a little bit of thinking but but if you've got <clears throat> if you've got one of these to play with i mean literally just just set it up and 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 you know you break out Break out Kapanji, right? And and then just start playing with orientations and just say, okay, so if I tilt, if I tilt the pelvis like that, what picks up concentric orientation? What is now eccentrically oriented? And that's gonna that's that's gonna give you, you know, what what movements you have available. Sure. And every time I bring this forward, and, and this <clears throat> this is one of those underappreciated things. This is why the dead guy anatomy is really frustrating is because and 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 the the brilliance of of the people that came before us that got to name everything, they screwed it up for everybody, right? Because they called these muscles up here external rotators. Oops. Even though when I go like that, they become internal rotators. Mm -hmm. Right? So they get misnamed and right away it's like everybody gets lost. I think there's two two articles, you got to look for them in the JOSPT, where literally they went through, and, it, and they're using uh, Euclidean geometry, which is okay. I mean, it's okay to, to get the grasp of understanding, but literally they take the moment arms of each of the, of the muscles of the hip as it moves through space, hmm. which becomes very valuable because now you start to see like, oh my gosh, it's like, uh, you know, uh, posterior glute med starts out as an external rotator from dead guy position. And then literally as, as you lower yourself into a split stance, now it becomes an internal rotator. Oh, wait a minute. That changes okay. the whole perspective on, on, on how I want to approach this. It changes the perspective on what's going to happen to the shape of the pelvis as I move through space. And it's like, they tell you that, okay, you know, um, uh, flexor hallucis longus bends the big toe, right? No. It lifts your heel off the ground when you're walking. Wait a minute. That's a totally different perspective now, isn't it? Yes. Right? So, so it's like I said, because they, they, they named it, they were pulling on the little, you know, the pulleys on the dead guy, and they pull and they go, look, it bends this big toe. Let's call that something Latin that means bend your big toe, right? And right. now it screwed everybody up because now the perspective is it bends your big toe, not what it really does. Right. 
Like, like they don't say, oh, this twists your tibia. You know, like you see these broad attachments of the, of the, the musculature in the lower leg, like the broad attachments on the bone. Yes. Don't you think that's going to move the bone? Sure. Of course it does. But they, but they kept, but they got distracted by sharp, shiny objects when they started to pull on the, on the tendons and the, and the distal stuff that, that doesn't weigh anything, right? It starts to bend. And, and so then it gets misnamed. So instead of calling it something Latin, that means, oh, it lifts your heel when you walk. They said, oh, it's a big toe bender. I mean, that's what's so difficult about trying to explain this stuff to other people or when people come and visit the gym and they see like, like I have a, I have a large demographic of like high school volleyball girls who all kind of fit in the same like shape and movement category. And they're all doing some kind of like, they'll come in and I, the, the way that I write their program or the way that their day split up, it ends up being like either Monday or Wednesday, they're doing some kind of box squat variation. And the interns that work with us see that and they, they kind of like put a label on everybody doing the same thing, but there's different breathing recommended for each one. There's a different tempo that's recommended with each one. They see like a band squat and a box squat is the same thing, which a box squat's like a hard stop. So it gives them, it gives them a little bit of force to push off of where a band squat's a soft squat. So like, there's a lot of variations that people just look at and think, okay, this is the same thing, just, you know, kind of played out across the board with everybody in the shape category. And it's not. So right. you got a lot of options there. Right. But, but this is, but this is why these programs that, that like our, our apprenticeship mentorship style programs have to exist is because people just don't know what the options are. Like they don't even know what they are. Right. And, and, you know, you have all of these superimpositions on top of the exercise. Right. And if you talk to like, say a power lifter, because they're all doing, they're all, their intent is basically the same in powerlifting. It's, it sort of gets mixed down to this limited number of options, right? There's only a couple of things that you, that you can do. There is a way for you to do this. Right. And then when you start to branch out and we get into these dynamics that that we're trying to um, support from a sporting aspect, it's like, oh, wait a minute, that's that's actually going to be detrimental if I do it that way. Whereas if I just tweak it in, in one respect, right, the, the duration of time on the box, the touch and go, the foot position, like all of these things can be manipulated to, to create just a just a point of emphasis that will support this individual's capacity, right? And again, it's like the only way that you're gonna get that kind of understanding is, is this experiential uh, type of a, an environment, right? It's like if I can't, if I can't access it at, at the quote unquote normal place in a joint, I'm gonna get it somewhere. Right. I need something that, that I need something that reorients me to go forward when I want to walk forward, knowing full well, knowing full well that people are going to be biased back towards external rotation under most circumstances. ER, ER is our is our home, so to speak. It, it from an evolutionary standpoint, external rotation came first, internal rotation came second, because. We were swimmers before we were walkers. 
and swimmers are externally rotated. Walkers have to internally rotate against gravity because the, the propulsive phase is different on land than it is in the water. I appreciate you all for being here. Have a great week. Hang in there. Keep doing good work and I will see you next time. Good morning, happy Friday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. I'm laughing because my battery went out about halfway through this thing. So this is, uh, this is take two for those of you playing the home game. Um, I hope this is at least as good as the last one. It was awesome. You should have seen it. It's probably the best video I've ever done. Anyway, um, so let's dig into the, the Q&A for today. We've been talking about the foot for about a week, and I was relating the foot uh, presentations to how it may influence your squat and your deadlift, and so I got some questions that came in through the YouTube videos as to how I would program a lift to, to bring it up. And so I made some recommendations to Alex on there, and I thought it would be a great way to sort of sort of wrap up the week here because we rarely get to talk about program, and I think it's it's kind of one of those things that's that's fun to talk about. But let me preface this by saying that I don't think there's any one magical program. I don't think there's a, a right way to do everything, but I do think that there's some principles that need to be appreciated that some people don't attend to enough, and that might be why they're they're frustrated. Aside from the fact that you may just not be genetically programmed to be great at some of this stuff. So so step one is probably pick better parents and then you know the rest of the stuff gets kind of easy. But I think that the if, if we think about this on a principled basis, um, one of the things that you probably need to, to recognize is that there's a learning and accordant effect of every exercise that you do. And so what that means is that if you do it um, more then theoretically you should get better at it. And so people that are program hoppers or they're looking for the next best thing or they're like, you know, they're, they're desperate for improvement. And, and so their desire is to think that there's one program that's gonna be the one that's gonna make the biggest difference. And the reality is there isn't one. But, but if you're cha constantly changing, then you have to relearn the, the exercises every time. So what I would say is if you're gonna try to bring your box squat up or any form of a big lift, continue to execute that lift. Keep it in the program for an extended period of time. It would be um, like a, an Olympic weightlifter that, that didn't keep squats in his program knowing full well that it is supportive of his Olympic lifts, right? So, so let's appreciate the learning and the coordination effect here. On, on a very, very large scale. Don't change your exercises as frequently. Um, secondly, one of the ways that I program from a, like a repetition standpoint is I tend to, to recommend that people train with, with a buffer at higher intensities. So what I mean by that, so if you came in and let's just say you, your program is to do um, your five repetition maximum load for the day, what I would say is come in do your 5RM load, but only do three repetitions with it. So we're, we're not training to a maximum force output every set. But what this does is allows you to accumulate volume at a very high intensity. So from a coordinative standpoint, we're still recruiting those higher threshold motor units that we need for the lift. So, so we, we maintain that aspect of it, but we're also accumulating volume. So from a cross-sectional area, um, there's gonna be a benefit there from a hypertrophy standpoint. 
Um, but we also have to think about how all the other tissues adapt over time. So the more exposures I get to these loads, um, I got to think about how the connective tissues are going to adapt over time. Um, I have to think about how the skeleton adapts over time. So one of the, the impacts on, on increasing your ability to, to, to lift a lot of weight is the shape change that takes place in your skeleton. So the better squeeze you are, the better exhalation strategy you can develop, the more weight that you're going to lift. So, so you have to be able to learn, you have to learn how to create internal pressures. And so that takes time to make that shape change as well. And so again, the repeated exposures to this higher intensity, the higher volume at this higher intensity is gonna promote those changes a little bit quicker. So, so let's consider that. When we talk about training with repetition maximum, so if I say you know, you're gonna train with your 5RM um, weight today, this is a great way to be testing your uh, ability to recover from workout to workout. So, so um, using the repetition maximum, sort of sets your training capabilities for that day. So there's a whole lot of monitoring systems out there that, that people are using, and those are, are, are great and, and useful. But when I come into the gym, um, whether you've got the green or the amber or the red um, on, your, on your device, what we wanna do is like, how, how can I execute in the, in the gym? That's really gonna be the, the true measure of what your capabilities are for that day. And so when we, when we use the training repetition maximum, it allows us to, to determine um, where we should be in our level of effort for the day. So um, if I come in and say I'm doing 250 pound squats for my 5RM on Tuesday, and two weeks later I come in and I'm, my 5RM is now 260, then I can identify that I'm making progress and I'm recovering. If I start to see that number decline, obviously I'm not recovering enough in between workouts. I have other in, influences that are maybe impacting my recovery and I need to make the adjustment, but you're always training at the appropriate level of intensity if I'm using that, that 5RM. And so again, these are just some of the simple concepts that, that I would use. Um, to accumulate volume and the coordination and the tissue adaptations. Then um, a second way that you wanna consider adjusting your program is to follow this type of a training cycle with something that is much, much higher intensity. So instead of coming in and training with a buffer, now we're gonna actually train at our, our repetition maximum. And so now we get another coordinative effect. So when, when we talk about uh, concepts like like the output of the of the central nervous system. Now we're going to start to train that at at, at a much higher level of, of effort and intensity. The volume won't be nearly as high, but again, we need both aspects. We we have to look at this from this coordinative tissue adaptation concept, and then we have to look at this from from the output of the nervous system itself. We can still use our training RMs that will help guide us in regards to our recovery, um, which again. Be, remains valuable, but now we have some, some guiding principles here. And then, you know, your supplementary exercises are also important. They contribute some volume, so they're gonna influence recovery, they're gonna influence your ability to move and, and adapt. So those are considerations, but, but lesser so when we're trying to bring up a lift, such as a, like a, a box squat or a deadlift. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of, of thought um, process anyway. And if you have any questions about program, please send them to askbillharmon at gmail.com, askbillharmon at gmail.com. Have a great Friday and a great weekend. I'll see you next week.